Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Zooming In on Hate. I'm your host Jordi Nijnhuis and today we have another special edition for you. My co-host Lydia Alcuri had the opportunity to interview speakers at the International Network Against Cyber Hate's annual conference in Malaga last year. And in this episode we'll explore the reasons why people hate with clinical psychologist Arun Wanshukani. So without further ado, let's turn to Lydia in Malaga. Now I'm really pleased that we're joined by Aaron Mansukani, who is a clinical psychologist here in Spain. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us on Zooming In on Hate. Thank you very much for, for calling me, for inviting me. So let's just start with what you do. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the connection to our conference here in Spain. And, and we're talking about hate speech and disinformation. What's the link to your work? Mm. Well, um, I have two links, I would say. I mainly work uh, with uh, patients, with clients, and I direct a team of psychologists and psychiatrists here in Malaga, and we are specialized in trauma. Uh, so we get a lot of thing, uh, you know, situations related to hate, probably very frequently at interpersonal level. Uh, you know, couples, uh, parents to our children, and uh, uh, things that have a lot to do with traumatic behaviors. And then for prior to that, for uh, seven years, I was working as um, the coordinator psychologist, the main psychologist in, a, in two centers of, uh, we call them here, of uh, acogida y, re, y rehabilitación. Well, uh, you could say child and adolescent offenders or children that came from, you know, uh, poorer social backgrounds. So even there, I had a chance to work with uh, many people that were related to, to this type of situations. So everybody in our community is touched in a, a, by hate, online hate, and is trying to do their best to combat it. And it would be really great to get your insights in helping us to understand intolerance. So I'm going to start off with a question, a really broad one. Tell us why is it so easy to be intolerant? Yes, because this is hardwired in our brain, literally. It's difficult for us to understand <laughs> these terms. But um, we have this natural tendency, to keep it short, to divide the world in, in twos, blacks and whites, constantly. And a specific form of this division, this is called dichotomic thinking, and a specific form of this is what we... Uh, when we use uh, this capacity to divide other people and make two groups, the in-group and the out-group. And this is so natural for us that we're doing this constantly. You know, the people of my company versus the people of the other company. Uh, if I have an Apple phone, Apple versus Samsung, <laughs> no, or Real Madrid versus Barcelona, or left versus right, we constantly divide the world in two groups. And this has to do with our need of belonging. We need to belong. As we need to belong, we need to create a group uh, to belong, with which we belong. And to create an out, a group, an in-group, as we call it, we need an out-group. And that's what makes us divide the world in, in this form. And sometimes the out-group can just simply be uh, a, sim a single individual. That can be enough. Once we do this, we have to be good members of our group. And part of being a good member of my group is probably being quite bad with the out-group. In fact, in a way, you can say we find that the, the most, uh, uh, you know, the, the people, the members of the group that are most uh, taken in higher esteem are the ones that treat the other group worst. In politics, we can see this, you know, the people that are most, most harsh against the other political group are 
pretty much taking into account or in football the the scorer that scores most goals and you know, goes and does all sorts of things to the rival camp is actually the best of us so this is part of us we form these groups and then it's legitimized to start treating the other group and members of the other group as if uh, you know i can do to them things i would never do to people from my group in some extreme cases we can reach to to treating them as not humans as uh, objects you know as infrahumans probably and we've seen this happen again and again and we see this happen on a daily basis again it means that we don't only have to think about the great moments of discrimination in history or or in different parts of our in the world today but even in small uh, situations of discrimination exactly the same thing is operating and probably on online adds another factor that we didn't talk about uh, it has to be with being anonymous all right so uh, a sort of uh, ephemeral group gets formed of people that are actually attacking and what only unites us is attacking the other part and but we in a way feel good once we belong to this group that's the attacking group not the one that's being attacked and uh, uh, and if it's anonymous it becomes even worse right we've uh, this has been studied since long when when a mob attacks an individual frequently initially just one or two people hit him if the person falls down everybody starts kicking him okay so something very similar probably happens online and so anonymity actually has a, a role to play in exacerbating uh, hatred or intolerance towards different people beyond any doubt it has this double effect one is that i'm not going to be punished and this is not a cognition it's a, a very basic emotion you know we respond to punishment so uh, if i'm anonymous i know i'm not going to be punished in no way i'm not going to be uh, singled out and then it has another very important aspect for us <clears throat> and that it has to do with empathy uh, this behavior we can broadly call it uh, psychopathic behavior broadly all right so we have these two extremes in human beings that psychopathic behavior that's when i behave with the other person not taking in account at all the feelings of the other person that's being psychopathic or sociopathic the other the opposite is being empathic where i'm very much connected emotionally with how you are feeling so my uh, behavior is uh, determined dominated by that all right this is one of the things we manage when we actually reduce the other person to an infrahuman level i can stop being empathic i don't have to be empathic with the people of the outgroup i don't have to be empathic with barcelona fans they are the enemy all right so you see empathy is reduced already just with this in-group outgroup trick but we know empathy emotional empathy has a lot to do with physical contact a lot uh, it has to do with being close to the other person with seeing suffering with feeling suffering and as we start um, you know bringing the people away more and more people stop behaving in an empathic way for example very simple investigation uh, i would ask you to press a button that gives electric discharges to someone sitting next to you all right imagine we we have this investigation for whatever for the threshold of pain for example and then i'll do the same thing taking the other person into other, another room but you can see him or her and the next is you can't see him or her but you can hear them the next is you can't see but you can't hear but in your panel it's clearly indicated low pain high pain extreme pain what we see as we start taking people further away the average of people will go much higher in electric shocks so this is a uh, absolutely no doubt investigation about how 
empathy is dependent on physical closeness. And this is what we lack online. So we have all these things coming in. I would say these are the, probably the two main things, you know, being anonymous, so I'm, uh, escape any punishment, and empathy is completely lost. I'm not seeing the other person. I'm not feeling how the other person is feeling. And that's the basic emotional empathy. There are two really, really important criteria for us to try and understand online behavior. So it's brilliant, Aaron. Thanks so much for explaining those. And, and I want to come back to something you mentioned. You mentioned psychopathic behavior. Do we all have the capacity to be psychopathic? I'd, I'd love to understand it. Yes, uh, no, we don't all have the capacity to, to be psychopathic. There are some people that probably will, will never have a psychopathic behavior in whatever conditions. There's a certain small group of people that will have a psychopathic behavior in any condition, and that's prob we probably call psychopaths. That's a small level of percentage of people. Uh, one to four percent, depending on the investigation. And basically, we don't have to think of people murdering other people. That's the very extreme, and it has to do with other traits. But we will call psychopathic behavior any behavior that exploits the other person, basically because I don't feel any empathy or I'm, I'm not moved by the other person. So once I'm, I don't feel empathy, uh, you become an object, and I'll use you in my benefit. I'm not worried about how you feel. It doesn't affect me in any way. And then in between of these two extreme groups, that's the psychopathic anyway, and the non-psychopathic no matter what happens, we have this huge group that's obviously not homogenous, you know, it's a, it's a continuum, where uh, we are all, probably all of us that can be, behave psychopathically or can behave empathically depending on certain circumstances we've just talked about some uh, anonym, being anonymous is one of them empathy is another one of them uh, and being in the in-group out-group is another one of them and another uh, very important one I feel is if they I start getting convinced uh, that you are harming me or may harm me in the future okay so then I go into this defensive mode and once I'm in a defensive mode anything is justified like if I now pick up the bottle and throw it at your head, probably uh, everybody will consider <laughs> quite a um, psychopathic character. But if now we find out that you actually were, I don't know, planning to harm me in some way, and I realize and I save myself, this turns things completely, all right? So what we see again is that many times when people start feeling the other person as a threat, uh, and this can be completely mad. I mean, there can be no objective reason. Uh, sometimes there can be political uh, people, you know, people that are politically interested in converting a, a person or group in a threat. If you become a threat, then I can literally do a lot of things to you that I wouldn't if you were not a threat. So this is another aspect that comes in. And probably a last one to finish all of them would be an emotional aspect that's disgust. Uh, disgust is an emotion that's not very much thought about, uh, but that once again uh, permits me, allows me to do anything. Uh, if someone becomes disgusting, once again this person goes below the level of uh, humanity nearly, and I can do anything with that person. Well, uh, means there are a lot of things I can do. So you can see that in all of these, we have the combinations that come together and create really terrible situations that may end in you know uh, wars or may end in um, extreme discrimination of groups or individuals sometimes. And we can see all those um, 
potential characteristics playing out online perfectly, actually, Aaron. And, and you can imagine that the online sphere actually probably exacerbates the, mm. the situation. Yes. For, yes. Uh, has that borne out in your work? Yes, it exaggerates. We talked about it, but probably we didn't specify it. It exaggerates us because it makes the in-group, out-group uh, much more possible, all right, because of this lack of physical uh, contact. So it's much easier to divide in your brain uh, when you're actually not talking with a person. And then this other aspect we talked about, the empathy, that's extremely important because probably empathy, uh, and, and we've not talked probably enough about it, is what prevents us from being uh, completely destructive. Uh, when we get linked and we start co-feeling uh, is when we actually don't harm. Um, in an extreme example, but it's true, if we didn't have an attachment system that basically uh, makes us empathic towards our children, we would probably kill them and eat them mm, because they're, they're protein and they're going to give a lot of trouble <laughs> throughout their life. Yeah. So it makes no sense from an individual point of view. All right. The only thing that prevents us from not being extremely individualistic there is this empathic link uh, towards our children. That's very emotional. It's not that we think about it. I, I, I wouldn't be able, I remember when my kids were small, I, we, we divided everything as much as we could, 50%. There was one thing I couldn't do. I could not cut my baby's nails, you know, because once one of them cried, and she cried and cried because I cut, and yet I yet get emotional when I think about it. And this is pure emotional empathy. Yes, You don't have to think about it. So empathy prevents us from being monsters, literally that. So if anything manages to lower empathy, the consequences can be terrible. And again, bringing it back to the online sphere, um, we're all looking for solutions. We're all looking for whether regulatory or... or uh, interventions, psychological solutions to stopping online hate. Can you see ways of increasing the empathy? Are there solutions, psychological solutions that we can use to bring people closer together? Because proximity is a, an important part of mitigating hate um, from, from what you've told us. Can, can you imagine scenarios that would help stop the polarization, stop the extreme of a group treatment mm. i'd love to know what you think yeah there's, a, there's a, a psychiatrist in chile that's got a lot of work about this it's called nicolas rodriguez a friend of mine and uh, we, we just talked about this recently because i had to talk about this and i told him and he gave me a lot of information yeah one of these uh, obsessive characters uh, he kept on sending me articles till six o'clock and <laughs> at midnight receiving them really grateful for them so he he's shown me a few investigations that were very interesting that divided the different types of approaches and saw that nearly all approaches had one of or a combination of three basic strategies uh, the most simple strategy is informing uh, and information is a strategy that least works because people just literally block out the information that doesn't coincide with their prior a way of thinking uh, and this is another bias that we know that exists we uh, if i'm a leftist i tend to read news in a way that it confirms that i'm completely right you know because belonging to an in-group also um affects my self-esteem the better my group the higher my self-esteem so in a way i get linked to the group so i'm not going to abandon it easily just because you give me some information so information or simply general information doesn't seem to be very useful. People won't even read it. Or at least the target people we're interested in are not going to read it. Right? A second level of information in this first group could probably be 
trying to pay attention to the psychological biases and trying to counteract each one of them. So we have this huge list. We just talked about some of them in, in the conference. But we have this huge list of biases that could probably help us and say, okay, how could we counteract this particular bias? This would probably help information a bit more, all right? Um, but it's yet there. The next level would be education. That's not simply information. That goes a bit further. That implies more long-term uh, interventions. And this is more useful, definitely. Uh, but if it's just education, once again, it falls short. All right? the, the next strategy, the second strategy, has to do with the public demonstration, with a protest. And what we see is this is very useful um, for um, improving the self-esteem of disfavored people or disfavored groups, you know, groups that have been um, completely pressed down or pushed out of the social arena. Once they can regain it, they start reducing the self-stigma. So it has this effect, but we also know it has an effect. In the most extreme group of people, that, of the detractors, they become even more extreme. Or we sometimes see, Europe is probably, probably the States too, we see this now, this extreme group that was silent or not organized gets organized after one of these. So um, obviously we have to allow you know, groups that didn't have the social arena to have it, to enjoy it, but we should know that this effect is something that could happen and that possibly will happen. So it's probably not very good at changing this extreme group. Maybe there's some intermediate people that will improve. All right, but we are less worried about these. They're going to be less harmful. We are really worried about the other group that can be in huge numbers, as, as we see now. And the third strategy uh, has to do with actually coming in contact with these minority groups at a deeper level. And this is what we see that works better. It's the most expensive uh, strategy to, to, to start working with, but it's actually what functions best. When we get groups of people that, I don't know, for example... Hmm, uh, people in a white neighborhood uh, that have only met uh, uh, white people, whatever that is, <laughs> white people, and they come, for example, to the population of uh, white Christians with Muslims coming from Middle East or I don't know, from wherever, and they start talking with each other, we see that many times this has a very powerful effect. Not always, but many times, because they stop seeing the other person as an object and they start understanding. Language is very important. If you don't understand the other person, if you don't speak a common language, it's much, much tougher to understand. There's another experiment that was done with Muslim mothers whose kids had been killed. It was in Syria. And they were screaming because the children had been killed. And they would show these videos without subtitling them. And people would have a very strong reaction against. Like, what are they saying? They're saying they want to invade Europe and yeah. all sorts of things. And when you would subtitle them, people would start empathizing. Because they would understand, they would understand their crime because the, the, the son or the daughter has just been killed. So understanding, speaking a common language is extremely important to, you know, to people be able to come together and start understanding each other. There's some great, great tips for offline work as well as online work, Aaron, because I think you're, you're saying proximity in a common language, it's, it's the key, bring, bringing people together, because we often hear in our work that um, the, the highest prejudice towards migrant communities are in areas that have no migrant communities so it kind of stands up to what you what you've just yes. said or has no or we have a, another group now that's even more worrying or has a community that's growing but there's actually no contact no intermixing uh, in spain we have certain places where we have a high number of 
mostly Moroccan or North African or whatever, uh, Muslim workers, that were brought specifically because they were needed. So they were brought, you know, taken away from their country, brought here. And now here we have the highest level of extreme right voters. So we say, how can that be if they're living together? But they are not living together. They're actually living side by side with no interaction at all. So it, this can actually worsen things even, you know, because I stereotype them even more. Well, I actually don't get to know them. So we have to not only bring them together, but, you know, be able to create some dynamics where actually they start opening up to each other. Otherwise, they can yet be living side by side and becoming each time more and more against uh, one against the other or probably against each other in many cases. Excellent. That's really, really great. Great, solid advice for people working in our community. And, and just to wrap up our conversation today, I, I'm just wondering, do you see... Do you see green shoots? I mean, we, we, there's a lot of negativity in relation to the rise in tensions, in polarization, in, in tolerance. And, and are you seeing positive steps being taken in your field to, to counteract yes, that? Yes, yes. Uh, there are a lot of positive things. In fact, uh, as a species, we function each day better. Uh, this is tough to see in, in, in day-to-day terms because we obviously, we have this other natural bias that we focus on all the negative and we overlook the positive. And this is a bias that saved, has saved our lives <laughs> a lot of times. So this is very um, hardwired into us. We tend to not look or not dwell on the positive things. If we have a, a look, uh, you know, a further away look, what we see is that humanity actually is coming much closer. The levels of intolerance were much higher some years back probably 100 years back, but we had less communities uh, meeting others. But for example, North America, the United States, when the United States started getting all this influx of immigrants, what happened with the immigrants there was terrible, much worse than what's happening now. You know, they were stoned and shot and, and the women were raped or men were raped, whatever. You know, like really extreme things that happen yet, but are much rarer. So I think the basic standards of what you can do to the other person has improved. And at certain level, there's not the possibility we had 100 years back to actually make the other person an infrahuman. All right, in, in the 18th century, a man as intelligent as Darwin, I admire him a lot, was convinced that the white man is the, it was superior to any other uh, human being. And, and this was a really extremely intelligent person of his time. So this has passed, fortunately. We, I would say, we would have to go to a very extreme minority to find people that yet defend this, all right? So this has improved. Um, probably we are coming closer to other groups more than ever before, and other groups are being portrayed as a threat. So probably this is a, something very important that we have to try and, and change. But in general terms, uh, all types of discrimination are actually diminishing. For example, against the gay community, Discrimination is, is huge, and many countries, uh, they probably get hanged, and, and it's terrible. But the number of countries that accept it have grown, and never before in history have we had so many countries uh, accepting uh, that people can decide what they want to do with their sexual preferences, or discrimination against women, or, well, the fact of me being an, an Indian, <laughs> an Indian-looking psychologist in Europe, and, uh, and being able to work and, and not encounter major problems. So all these are clear indications that we are improving. For the people that are suffering, this probably is not much of a help because it's terrible and it's too slow and it's things that are going to take hundreds of years. But probably when we are working in this, it's good for us to remember, you know, and calm down and say, okay, 
at the end, we are going to win. And maybe we don't see the end of the battle. We're just going to be a part of it. But we know that the end is that either we disappear, that's probably the end as a species. But if we don't, the trend is clearly going in one direction. And maybe we get visited by someone from outer space. And uh, if that happens, then it'll be a complete change because they'll become the out group. And we'll accept that we're all part of the same group. So maybe that happens and change happens suddenly. Uh, this was just a, a joke in the end. But never know what can happen. Excellent. Thanks, Aaron. That was a lovely positive note and we, we love a bit of positivity and zooming in on hate. Thanks a million for joining us today. Thank you very much.